Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Open your Bibles, please, to John 13. Yeah, if you really want to have some fun on Wednesday night, come to the Iwana Grand Prix. I'm going to enter a car, and that's exactly what it means, so, you know... That little bag of car is what I call humiliation in a bag. So I'm, I'm making a car because everybody feels cheated if they don't get to laugh at me and my slow cars. So, so I will be there with my, uh, with my imitation of my new car there. Uh, well, it's going to be black. It's going to be just like my new car. So, yeah, the new, the new Rev Wagon, Rev Wagon 2. I've been reading a, a journal for pastors called leadership for about 25 years off and on haven't probably read every uh, issue of it and uh, sometimes I read to uh, to learn some things sometimes I read to learn what I don't think and uh, what other people think that's crazy but it kind of keeps me abreast of what people think in the broader Christian world but one of the very important reasons that I read leadership is because of the cartoons to turn the lights off, yeah. This uh, some of the cartoons are based in dreams. You know, there was a scorecard: Pastor Forty Three, Sin Zero. Nice to hear a good old-fashioned sermon again. Some of these cartoons are based in reality. What time does your service start? What time can you get here? <laughs> Reverend Rodney has a real small church. Some cartoons are based in the dreams of the people in the pew. When this cartoon was actually published, it was before it was possible to put the scores on a screen next to the pulpit. Now it wouldn't be that much of a miracle. It looks like we're going to get a lot of Greek root words again. Pastor's reading from a scroll. And some of these cartoons are based on the pastor's family. Remember, Beauregard, you're the pastor's dog, and all the other dogs will be watching you. <laughs> the pastor says, you are coming to church this morning, aren't you? To his lovely wife. <laughs> More truth than not in that. <laughs> you bet it's a gift, and wait till you see what he does with lamentations. Did you know your pianist just played a Billy Joel tune as the offertory? <laughs> this is one of my favorites. You see it says Easter Sunday, and the man says, you're in a rut, Reverend. Every time I come here, you preach about the resurrection. <laughs> oh. You might have felt like we've been in a bit of a rut in the last uh, few weeks or months because the Gospel of John has been teaching us the Gospel over and over and over. I, I've never preached the Gospel so much week after week after week. I, I, I like to think that we talk about the salvation that is ours every week in some form, and yet we've been talking about the person of Christ and who He is and, 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 and what it means for Him to be the Savior 
a week after week after week. And, and it's not an accident because uh, John, as he organized his gospel, essentially did that on purpose for the first 12 chapters of the book. He said, look, here is who the person of Christ is. In the other three gospels, they essentially follow a historical narrative. That is, they say Jesus went here, then he went there, then he went there, then he went there. And that's not to say that they're without commentary on the things that he did. Uh, And certainly the truths that he taught are there recorded. But John starts with Christ as the eternal son of God in eternity past and doesn't even talk about his human birth other than to say that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he goes right on about the person and work of Christ in more of a theological textbook fashion than in a historical narrative fashion. And so when he comes now uh, toward the end of chapter 12, he says Jesus finished and he hid himself. In other words, he went away from the multitudes. In chapter 13, uh, the first half of the book is what we could call Christianity 101, and and starting in chapter 13 is what I'd like to call Christianity 102, because it's it's, it's targeted toward those who have already believed in Christ. Up until this point, the primary focus on the truth is trying to help people understand who Jesus is and who they are so that they can come to faith in Christ. Now... Jesus turns to his disciples, and uh, through them, he turns to us, the Christians who are going to come afterwards, and he is going to give a series of truths in chapters 13 through 17 that speak about the Christian life. Chapters 13 through 17 occur in one evening. The first 12 chapters occur in three years to give you an idea of the, of the range. And so if we would look at that, we would say, wow, all of this truth at one point, it must be important, and we ought to pay very close attention to it. So the first truth that Christ gives in this section uh, to the, of the Christian life in the Gospel of John is this. Christians are servants, or maybe we would better say Christians are supposed to be servants. Follow as I read from John 13, starting in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that phrase is used a number of times in the the Gospels. Usually it says his hour had not come, like it wasn't time. Now he says it's time. What's it time for? His hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he arose from supper and he laid aside his garments, he took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The setting here is that of Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples. Now, I've put the classic picture here for a couple of reasons. One, to say this is not how they were sitting. And the other, just to get the image of you of the, of the 13 of them being gathered in the same room. When they sat at a meal in those days, they would lean on cushions or what we would call pillows with one arm and eat with the other arm and their feet would be sticking out away from the table. You know, later when we read about the one, the apostle, the disciple who was leaning on Jesus' breast, and we think, what in the world is going on? Well, if people were all around that table leaning like this, you're, you're almost on the guy behind you. And so it wouldn't be a big deal to lean back and say something to somebody. They weren't sitting at a table in chairs. That's not how people ate in those days. They're here in the upper room. They're going to have this Passover together. The disciples don't understand that how unique this time is because throughout the three years that Christ is with them, they consistently don't fully grasp his ministry. Now, a big part of the reason for that is because the Holy Spirit has not come to indwell them. Their salvation is not uh, complete in the sense of God bringing the Holy Spirit in so that they can really understand the truth of God. And it's also not complete because all of these events haven't finished. And from the point of view of Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and the work of Christ is done, then they look back and go, oh, that's what was going on. But at the time, they don't fully understand. They're at this last supper, if you will, and uh, the, it's a Passover feast, and they've come to eat together, and if we ask this question, why did they come to eat the Passover together? It's because they did it every year. See, part of our mental image is, oh, this was a special, unique thing. No, they did this every year. It was the Feast of Israel. And so to them, in part, they weren't expecting anything unique. They've come together to eat. It's the Passover. We all get together. It's, it's a, roughly equivalent to us having you know, Easter and the whole family gathers and we have this big meal. Of course, there's a, there's a spiritual significance to the Old Testament believer in that time frame. But they've gathered for this meal. They didn't know this was going to be the last Passover with Jesus on earth before he completed the work of salvation and went home to heaven. And perhaps if they'd known what was really going on and the things that were ahead, they would have acted a little bit differently. Because this is the topic of conversation at the meal. 
Now there was also a dispute among them as to which one of them should be considered the greatest. (laughs) You ever have that discussion around your table? We're, We're much too sophisticated and polite to do that. We do that in private when nobody's looking. What's really sad is this was not the first time they had this discussion. It was at least the second time. And they're talking about who's the greatest. Now, how does, how does that discussion go? Do they just flat out say, I'm better than you? No. They probably talk like we talk today, like when men get together. Hey, how many were there when you preached last week, John? Well, you know, I think there was somewhere between three and 4,000. That's a preacher joke. When somebody says, how many were in church? You say between three and 4,000. That's between three and 4,000. And John says back to the guy who asked him the question, how many people did you baptize last week? And, you know, when guys get together, they talk about what makes them great. And I can imagine them talking about whatever it was that they thought made them great. It wasn't just saying, oh, I'm the greatest. They would have had to have some substance behind it. How many people did you heal last week? How many people were, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And can you imagine Jesus trying to enjoy his lamb dinner with that conversation going on? I mean, talk about pulling out your hair. And so what does he do in response to this conversation? He's got the disciples together. He knows he's going to be teaching them things, and he wasn't surprised by their conversation. But instead of getting up and, so to speak, breathing fire and harshly rebuking them, he gets up and takes off his outer clothing. It would be like, it would be similar to me taking off my coat or my outer clothes, and there were still clothes underneath, but he would take off his outer clothes, and he took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and left it hanging out. And he gets a basin and some water, and he goes over and just starts washing the first guy's feet. Now, you need, again, to visualize the atmosphere here. In that time frame, everybody wore sandals. That's just the shoes they had. I mean, I suppose there were poor people who had no sandals, and then they were just walking barefoot. And so, as you would walk from anywhere to anywhere, your feet would get dirty on the way. There wasn't paving you know, Rome did pave some of the, some of the big uh, highways, we would call them, between major cities, but there wasn't paving in town. And so they'd walk through the dirt and their feet would be dirty. And it was customary when they came into the house that one of the servants in the house would wash their feet. But that apparently had not been done here. And so Jesus goes over and starts washing their feet. Now you and I have a certain image of washing people's feet, which is, ooh, that's kind of icky. But you need to take your mind a a great step farther and to understand this. In the day of Christ, a Jewish slave, a Jewish slave would not be forced to wash feet because that was too low for a Jewish slave to do. A Gentile slave, a non-Jew, would be made to wash the feet when people came into the house. So essentially, foot washing was the lowest of the low tasks And Jesus goes over and starts washing the feet of the disciples. 
washes one, then another. We don't know what order. We don't know what order they were sitting in. But he's washing their feet. And as we say, you could hear a pin drop in the room. Because they're all thinking what Peter says. But of course, Peter is the first to talk. Look at verse 6. He came, then he came to Simon Peter, which means Simon Peter wasn't first. But he gets to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, are you washing my feet? And I'm sure that the other apostles were thinking the same thing. Because this was not a task for their Lord and Master to be doing. Are you washing my feet? And Jesus said, look, you don't understand. You don't understand. And what happened from Peter's interchange with him was this. Jesus had to go down a little bit of what I've called a theological rabbit trail. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus had a primary objective in what he was doing, but Peter's interjection forced him to go sideways for just a minute. But even that, we'll see in a minute, is not outside the realm of what Jesus was trying to communicate. Peter says to him, look, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answers him, verse 7, first of all, he answers him and says, look, you don't understand. You don't understand what's going on. And then he says, he says uh, you will know this later. And then Peter says in verse 8, he says, um, you shall never wash my feet. In the original language, this is written as a double negative. We don't allow double negatives in English because in our logical world, double negatives make a positive. But what Peter literally says is, no, you shall never wash my feet. It's, it's a strong statement. And Jesus answers him back and says, look, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter doesn't understand that Christ is in the middle of a lesson. All he can see is how socially wrong this was and how embarrassed he is that Jesus is washing his feet and not the other way around. And yet Christ still patiently stops to respond. And in his response, he says, first of all, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will eventually, when my work is completed and when the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will understand it more. Secondly, look at verse 8. Christ says, Peter, this is about, this is a picture of spiritual cleansing, Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now we know clearly from the message of Christ throughout his life that some physical washing, some physical act never communicated spiritual value to people. Nobody got saved by having their feet washed by Christ. And so he's teaching a lesson here through a picture, through an illustration he says, look, this cleansing of your feet is a picture of spiritual cleansing. He says, therefore, if I don't cleanse you, we're not, we don't have a relationship. And so Simon Peter answers back, well, boy, if a little washing is good, wash me all. 
And that's, that's what he says. He, it, it's like when he's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He just sees something great and he goes, wow, we got to do something. He, he just can't sit still and listen to the Lord. And so he says, well, wash my hands and my head too. And Jesus says something unique back to him in verse 10. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, and he is completely clean. But you are, but you are, and you are clean, but not all of you. There's two different words for washing here, and that helps us in our understanding. The word for bathed means just that. It means to have an all-over cleansing. We have a, a, an image in our mind of what it means to take a bath, and typically we might talk about taking a shower. We get in the shower, the water, and the soap, and we're all cleansed all over. It's an all-over cleansing. In that day, they may well have gone to a public bath. If you've ever seen something about the history of the Romans and how they built public baths everywhere, and people would go because to have a large amount of hot water was a luxury, not something that everybody had in their home. And so the image well could be that of going to the public bath and becoming cleansed, but on the way home your feet get dirty. Even if it's not the public bath, it's the idea that when I'm going to go to something like the Passover meal, I cleanse myself, I make myself ready, but as I go my feet get dirty. And Jesus said the person who has bathed, to paraphrase it, doesn't need to bathe again. They just need to wash their feet. Just their feet are dirty. And Jesus said, if I don't bathe you or wash you, you have no part with me. From verses 8 and 10, we understand that Jesus is talking about more than physical dirt. He is speaking about the filth of sin. And the concept of salvation, washing away sin, is used throughout the New Testament But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God says that when we come and put our faith in Christ, the work of Christ washes us clean. It's as though we take a spiritual shower and all of our sin is washed away and God sees us as clean and new. And Jesus says he who is bathed only needs to wash his feet. What is the foot washing for the Christian? If bathing is the salvation that God brings to us, the foot washing has to do with our daily sin. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself clean from the world. So he's talking to Christians and he says it's possible for a Christian to get soiled by sin. And that's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. In this little aside that Christ does because of Peter's objection, he teaches Peter a spiritual truth that Peter will not fully understand until later. But when Peter comes to that great infusion of the Holy Spirit, he looks up and he goes, Oh, the bathing is about washing away sin, and the foot washing is a picture of how daily I need to confess my sin. And if I do that, I have a part with 
Christ. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Fellowship with Christ comes, first of all, by our salvation. When I accept him as my Savior and my sins are washed away, I, become, I have fellowship with him. And our fellowship is maintained as I wash my feet every day. I wash the sin of, or God washes my feet when I confess my sin. Author John Phillips summarizes this truth from Christ well in his commentary when he says this. It was Calvary that brought the light of day to shine on this truth. The blood of Christ provides us with a once-for-all radical cleansing from sin, a complete bath, so to speak. But in our daily walk through this world, we become defiled. So our feet, which come in contact with the world, need to be cleansed. We need, in other words, recurrent cleansing from sin. At this stage of their spiritual pilgrimage, Peter and the others were not able to grasp these truths. And yet Christ took the time to teach them because he said, there will come a day when you will understand. So Peter interrupts Christ, but far from being wasted time, the interaction with Peter itself is another example of what Christ really wants them to learn about the Christian life, which is this, Christians are servants. Even in this interruption, Christ demonstrates his servant leadership by patiently teaching Peter. We go on now to the actual instruction that Christ intended for this illustration, starting in verse 12. So when he had finished washing their feet and had taken his garments and had sat down again, then he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? This time Peter keeps his mouth shut. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. The first thing he tells them is, look, here's my position. I am your teacher and Lord. You call me teacher and Lord. The word teacher is sometimes translated rabbi. It's a term of great respect that somebody would use for their teacher, we, we call uh, men and women professors in college. It's not always a term of respect, but it's supposed to be. It's supposed to acknowledge the understanding that they've gained. They called him teacher. They said, you're the teacher, clearly implies we are the pupils. Then they also called him Lord or Master. And that clearly infers that they were his subjects. In a human sense... And of course, with Jesus, even in a spiritual sense, he was superior to them. And he starts by that. He says, look, you all acknowledge that I am your superior. And they're all probably shaking their head. Yeah, yeah, okay, nothing new there. And he said, so, what did I do? Follow it along in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Christ did the work which was reserved for the lowest of the low, a Gentile slave. Why did he do it? Because it was what they needed. He didn't do it because it was fun. He didn't do it because it would make him look good. He did it because it was what they needed. 
And this is part of what it means when it says in verse 1 that he loved them to the end. If you'd look at that little phrase, the words love them to the end have two ideas in them. One is all the way to the completion of a set of events. In other words, Christ loved them all the way till the end of his human time. But it also means that he loved them to the, to the greatest extreme. He loved them to the maximum degree. For him to get down on his hands and feet and wash their feet and do the work of a slave is the maximum degree of putting them first and putting himself second that he can do short of the cross. The cross is going to be a huge example of that. That's why we read from Philippians 2 this morning because it says he humbled himself even to the point of the cross all the way to dying that that terrible death. He humbled himself that much because of our need. He said, I expect you to follow my example. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent that is greater who sent him. And so Christ is saying, look, I am the greatest among you, and I'm sending you out to act like me. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, he records a little bit more of this teaching, and he says this. We, the verse we already read, now there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And Christ said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. There's a phrase that's been developed from this teaching amongst Christians in recent years called servant leadership. None of this teaching of Christ negates the fact that God wants spiritual men, for instance, to lead in the church. He wants them to lead in their home, but he doesn't want them to lead like the Gentiles lead. He wants them to lead as servants. And he wants all of us as Christians to take on the mentality that he had, which was, I will do whatever it takes to minister to you. In true Christianity, people don't act or do things in order to gain power or prestige. They act based on the needs of others and for the sake of others. In this, Christ is our prime example. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, rich in heaven, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Nothing held back. Warren Wearsby put it this way, it has well been said that humility is not thinking poorly of yourself, it is simply not thinking of yourself at all. That's a tough one for us. That's a tough one for us. 
when I was in Bangladesh last fall, we had to walk about two kilometers up this road. The word road in quotes there. And, uh, it, you know, we got out of the van. We're getting, we stopped the van. They said, well, we're going to take our shoes and socks off and walk the rest of the way. And I thought, is that a joke? <laughs> no, no joke. And there they go. And when we got to the church, they washed our feet. And I was like, oh, I can do it. I can do it. No, 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 no. And they had to get every speck of dirt off our feet. And they were thrilled to do it. The problem for us is, I think it would be easier for us to do that than to do what Jesus says, which is to put others first. See, he didn't say, have a ritual once a month when you have communion, have some people sit on the platform and wash their feet. That does not fulfill this command. As, as wonderful as some of the church folks are that might practice that, that does not fulfill this command. This command is, look, I put other people first, even to the point of being like a slave on my hands and knees. And I'm asking you to go that far in being servants to each other. Being a humble servant touches on, on several ideas. I tried to, to think this through a little bit and try to maybe come up with some principles that would help us to think it through. I think one of the questions is this. What are the activities you won't do in serving the Lord? Have you ever, have you ever said, you know, you kind of draw a line and say, no, I don't do that. Now, sometimes, you know, there's some good reason for that. I understand. Not everybody's gifted to stand up here and sing. I was glad to be able to have some of our newer folks that I could call on when Glenn has gone on vacation and Meg is sick. I was glad to say, hey, can you guys stand in? Yeah, we can do that. And they can stand up here and do it. There's some of you I wouldn't ask. Although truly, in the spirit of worship, if you're really worshiping the Lord, and even if you're making a joyful noise, that might even be better sometimes because your heart's going out to the Lord, you know. But I know not everybody can stand up here and sing or preach, or maybe not everybody can teach a certain class. I understand that. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, are there things that I've said, I won't do that? Whatever it is. And, and I bank a lot on the fact that God says he never leads us into anything we can't handle in Christ. And so that if you've been asked, I think it's entirely possible you might be able to do some things. But the question is, what won't you do? Um, and I don't even want to mention any specific ideas because I don't want to create the idea that I'm trying to drum up workers for the church or trying to draw a list of things you should do in your life, I really just want to plant that question with you and with me and say, is there something that I won't do? Is there something that's beneath me? Because if I think that way, I'm not thinking like Christ. There was nothing beneath Christ all the way up to being naked on a cross in front of the world and killed for us. Sometimes we could turn this around and say, are there activities that you must do? I must be the chairman. I must be the leader. I must be this 
in order to serve the Lord. Christ just says, look, will you just serve other people? Brings me to my second question, which is this. Who is there that you won't serve? Who is there that is beneath you? Who is there that's too, you fill in the blank. Because it doesn't appear that there was anybody in that two category for Christ. The woman at the well. You understand that when he talked to the woman at the well, it was absolutely radicalizing that he would even talk to a woman. Besides the fact that she was a known immoral woman. Besides the fact that she was a Samaritan. But he talked to her and looks like she became a believer. He didn't... He didn't have a list of people he wouldn't serve. Listen to this quote from one of the authors I read this week. This is really challenging. Especially ironic was that moment when Jesus knelt before Judas Iscariot and with no hesitation he washed Judas' feet knowing that he was plotting to betray him. Wow. I don't work with those people. I only teach this group. I only have these people into my house. A true servant of God is also a servant of man. He or she has their eyes fixed on God's goal of making disciples, not a personal goal of receiving applause or acclaim. Who is there you won't serve? You know, if you don't write anything else down, or I don't know if I wrote it all the way out in your notes, write those two questions down and just meditate on them prayerfully this week and ask God to show you. You know, I I, I don't see any people here that look like terrible, arrogant people. I don't. But I don't know what goes on in your mind and heart. And if we want to follow what God has said, we need to to think about this. There's an encouragement that goes with this instruction. And it's verse 17. It's one of my new favorite verses. Because it's one that I haven't taken much note of, I guess, but it just speaks volumes. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's a specific principle here. And the specific principle is this. Serving others brings happiness. Now, I'm not totally sure I can lay out all of the reasons for that, but I can think of a couple, and one would be this. A focus on the needs of others ends the chase for personal significance. How hard do some people run to be great, to be seen, to to receive the recognition you know when they, when they have the awards, the Oscars for the movies, that part of the way they get people to vote is other folks send them things and say, please vote for this guy, please vote for this guy. It's not enough to just have everybody say, well, which one do I think deserves an award? A focus on other people lets us stop chasing personal significance. I don't need to be constantly trying to make others see my greatness. I don't need to fret because somebody else got my promotion. 
Look at that guy. Look at that gal. Look what, how come they got promoted and I didn't? A focus on others keeps me from dwelling on what I have or on what I don't have. If I really am focused on saying, what can I do for my neighbor and what can I do for my friend and what can I do for my church person here? If I'm really thinking about that, I'm not looking around and saying, you know what? Boy, I don't have much. Service to others can always be given while the gaining of personal pleasure cannot always be secured. I want you to think about that again. I hope it's not too much of a, of a formula there. But if I set out to serve somebody, I can always do that because people like to be served. But if I set out to make myself happy, I may fail by the end of the day. And so if I, if I focus myself on caring for others, I can reap the joy of the Lord every time, whereas selfishness doesn't get me there. The specific principle here is serving others brings happiness. There's a broader principle. Righteousness yields happiness. Righteousness yields happiness. Warren Wiersbe put it this way. Submit to the Father, keep your life clean, and serve others. This is God's formula for true spiritual joy. Listen to these words from James. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately he forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. You know what the word blessed means? Near as I can find, it means to have a joyful, happy life. The, the literal meaning of the root word is the idea of enlargement, something getting bigger. And it stands in contrast to some other words that are spoken of as joy and whatnot. He says he'll be blessed. I want to suggest something really radical. If you're not happy, it may well be because... Your spiritual life is deficient. There is some command of the Lord that you may be ignoring or some attitude you need to implement. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. Now, that's not to say that there aren't sad times in our life, times of grief, absolutely appropriate at certain times. But even then, to have the joy of the Lord through the grief, Jesus said, happy are you if you do these things. When you go to a restaurant, as some of you will, in a short period of time, you will expect to be served. If, we, if the myths are correct, the word tip stands for to ensure promptness, and it started in England, and they would put a cup on the table, and you'd put money in as soon as you sat down, so you'd get preferential treatment. We might work better if we went back to that system than the one we have now, I'm not sure. But when you go to a restaurant, you expect to be served. And you will talk when you leave about the service, especially if it was bad. You will say, whoa, whoa, you know, and you'll have all those comments. 
When you go to a doctor or a dentist, you expect to be served. I don't have all day, don't have all day, you know. When you go to school, you expect to be served. You expect that teacher to be there teaching you and so on. What do you expect when you come to church? What do you expect when you come to church? Do you expect to be served? I think what I read in John chapter 13 is I should come to church expecting to serve. I should come to church saying, God, who is there whose feet need to be washed today? Oh, well, that guy does. Oh, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about washing his spiritual feet, helping him with his life. I should come to church with that attitude. I should go to the restaurant with that attitude. Boy, tough to be patient sometimes. But I need to go saying, God, help me wash people's feet. Help me care for people more than myself. Father, thank you for our humble Savior who did not care more for himself than for me and for everybody here. He subjected himself to terrible insults and punishment and death for me. He washed my feet by going to the cross. Father, help me to wash the feet of the saints. Help me to serve this body and other Christians as I come in contact. And help me to serve those who don't know you yet. Help me to remember that you laid down your life for me and I need to lay my life down for them. Father, make that true of this whole church. Father, change us so that we care for others, so that we reach out to others, so that our greatest joy when leaving church is to know that we encourage someone today. Father, continue to speak to us and work through us as we sing and fellowship and as we go our ways home. Give us a great time together of serving some senior saints today. I pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-384. 3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.